Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Who are you? Let me just ask you that again. Who are you?
here's the diamond of it all. Knowing how you actually want to feel is the most potent form of clarity that you can have. And generating those feelings is the most powerfully creative thing that you can do with your life. It is your birthright to have your desires fulfilled. Every desire is a prayer. Desire is the underpinning of manifestation. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was the wonderful Daniel Laporte, who is reminding us that every pure thought is a prayer. Never give up on those pure feelings and ideas that are stimulating in you, especially for the new year in 2020. We've got enormous possibilities upon us, and we've never made a New Year resolution. We're wishing for the worst. We've always wanted the best in our lives. So I hope today finds you in a spirit of really pushing through from what you've left behind in 2019 to um, rise to be the best that you can. I know a lot has happened in 2019, and even just recently we lost one of our very dear ones, Ram Das, right before Christmas last year, and that was a big miss or a big hole. But you know what? Um, I believe that the soul is energy, and we play out our parts, our many parts, And we come back to continue the story, and I wouldn't say do it all over again. I would just say to continue. Continue, like an actor. An actor comes in, has a particular character that they've picked up in the script, they play it out, they do exceptionally well, and then they move on to another character, and they play that out, and they play it very well. And then they move on to another character, and they play that out and they move on to it very well. I want you to give that some thought. Really think about it. How many parts have you played so far? How many? Many, right? There are a lot of stuff sitting inside of us that are just experiences from the past. Some of them, though, we're holding on to deeply, and they are holding us back tremendously, and we need to recognize that, you know what? I've got a lot of potential in me, so let me really just continue to rise and shine and do the best that I can. Today gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Samantha Madhusingh, and she has dedicated more than 20,000 hours to researching, understanding, and solving the infinite possibilities of human potential, behavior, and even performance. Now, Dr. Madhusingh also serves leaders and executives in business and in life, providing key strategies to achieve mastery in mindset, communication, and 
relationships. A frequent media contributor and sought-after expert for both local and national media, Dr. Samantha has appeared on the CW Network, Fox, NBC, CBS, to just name a few. She has also authored several books, including her best-seller book, Strike It Happy, 101 Reflections to Revolutionize Your Life. Today, we're very happy to welcome Dr. Samantha Madison to America Meditating. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice to talk with you today. Same here. I hope the year is going to start off absolutely perfect for you. You're just going to be living in your potential that in 2021, you wonder what next to write. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's a great idea. Right. All right. So you've got a doctorate in professional psychology, and you've also worked in a variety of mental health care settings. Dr. Samantha, what actually has inspired your interest in this particular field of psychology? Um, Well, I've been a psychologist now for close to 20 years. My interest is in the desire to understand human beings, right? So really wanting to understand how and why people do the things that they do. Even as a child, I was very curious about people, very observant about how people behave and just really want to help people. Before becoming a psychologist, the last thing that I did was working for protective services and seeing young children in um, kinship and foster care who had, you know, violence and neglect in their lives and just feeling quite inept at truly being able to help them. So that was kind of the impetus finally to have me cross the last threshold and get into psychology. Now, you've provided a lot of mental health services at Men's Correctional Facility. What was that like being, were you ever like afraid or uncomfortable or did you feel like you were walking into those, those sounds, you know, it's so metallic. What an interesting place. Don't you think there's nothing in there that I have found that can rehabilitate a person, especially when a person who's been incarcerated was actually innocent? the emotional drainage that takes place in those facilities. On a personal level, what was it like for you, your first visit, as you went in to help individuals in that specific area? It was quite interesting because I thought I would be, exactly as you described in the beginning, that I would be fearful. What's really interesting in the state of California, when you go to do this, they have you sign a document saying that they have a policy of no hostage negotiations. So if you were to be held by an inmate, they wouldn't negotiate for your release. And at first that gave me quite a pause to think about. But then they explained that the reason that they do that is to de-incentivize inmates from taking you. And so after they explained that, I thought, okay, let's see how this goes. So the facility was enormous. And I remember the very first time walking on the yard and wondering, do I look at the ground? Do I look at them? Do I make eye contact? What's the protocol? And, you know, we were told to be just ourselves and just to be natural, but to be cautious and to be very aware of your surroundings. And so that's what I did. And to be honest, I can't say that I was fearful. I don't think you can do that work and do it effectively Mm -hmm. if you are. And also, I think in order to be a helpful mental health professional in an environment like that, you have to suspend judgment on you know, what people are there for in order to be able to assist with their mental health in the moment. So if someone's in crisis or suicidal, thinking about what horrible thing they did to get them there wasn't particularly going to be helpful to them. And I mm-hmm. unfortunately saw many men who had 
significant mental illness, many with schizophrenia and other severe illnesses and feeling like this was really not the best place for them to get treatment, obviously. But this was a situation that they were in, met many men who had been incarcerated since they were teenagers in their late teens, and now they were in their 50s and 60s. It's heartbreaking, actually, just to see the loss of life. Yeah, the loss of life. uh, Being in that situation. Systems and individuals with a lot of power want to have that kind of an industry available so they can stay alive. And that's why it's so hard for people like you to go in and do the real work over a long period of time and amplify it and make it even better. Because for me and you, we don't know why they wouldn't want to rehabilitate these young men and women to at least have some kind of a sanity for them to be able to get out and just understand that what they did was extremely wrong and to become stewards that can share life is worth so much more than taking the life of another or hurting or violating the life of another, whatever it might be. It's quite an interesting system. So any thoughts that you might have as to why aren't more people seeking treatment? Is this because... There's this incredible stigma around mental illness. For me, my definition, Dr. Samantha, of mental illness is even when I get upset, when I'm judging or criticizing someone, it's a form of mental illness. And if I keep doing it over a long period of time, it could become very detrimental in the long run. And I know people don't look at mental illness starting from that thought level that every time I get upset, I'm mentally ill at that moment. And I think we need to also address it from the bud, you know, from that place until it gets to something really blown out. But back to my question, why aren't people seeking more treatment? Is it the stigma around it? Yes, there is a whole lot of stigma. And I think people are searching for quick fixes. Mm -hmm. To your point, people often don't seek therapy or any treatment until they've reached crisis point, right? So a lot of the work that I did earlier in my career was working with uh, young people, children. And, you know, oftentimes parents would come in and bring their kids and say, okay, fix them. They didn't want to look at the fact that oftentimes parents contribute to the issues that children have. And there may be things that parents can do to modify their own behavior, modify the engagement they have with their children that would alleviate some of the distress that their children are experiencing. And again, when they bring kids in, they're quite fickle. Um, It's, okay, we have a crisis right now, fix this problem right now, and then we're done. And that's really not how it works. With adults, I've actually heard people say that they would rather take medication than go to therapy because they Mm. don't want to do the work. And so if you're really interested in growth and development, I honestly truly believe that therapy is actually good for most people because... Understanding the way that you think and why you think the way that you do and how your thought pattern and the conditioning that you have impacts the way that you behave and how you have relationships with other people, I think is critical. And so if you want to have healthy relationships with other folks, learning to understand what you're doing and how you impact other people, I think is crucial. Most people Mm. are not willing to do that work. Hmm. Could be just a stigma or maybe it needs a lot of courage. You know, haven't you been in a place where you know you need to look at something within you, but you just put it on the pending file? Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that oh, part absolutely. of me later. <laughs> I'll come back to this. Yes. But, you know, right. the thing is, I would say one of the things about myself that I can say is that I'm not afraid to look in the mirror. I, I've done mm-hmm. a lot of work on myself. I've been in therapy. I've had coaches. One of the first things books that I wrote was about my own journey with depression. 
And I don't hide that. You know, one of the things, being a psychologist, we're trained not to ever discuss anything about ourselves. And I found treating other people and not disclosing that I knew what they were going through and understanding what having depression or being on medication, what any of that was like, I found it very difficult. And so eventually, several years ago, I outed myself and said, you know, this was my journey. And this is how Mm -hmm. I overcame this. And most of the clients and patients that I had after that were so relieved because it's like, oh, now I know that you understand what I'm dealing with. (laughs) Because people used to say to me, well, you're so perfect. Your life is so perfect. You have no understanding of what I'm dealing with. And I was, no, that's not true. And so it was very helpful, I think, at least for me. I don't want to hide who I am. And it was contributing to a sense of imposter syndrome, I think for me at the time Mm -hmm. that I had this secret and I was a fraud and getting over that and, and being able to discuss that allowed me to help people in a different way. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Just technology, social media, everything is fake news, fake marketing. And I was looking Mm -hmm. through Facebook yesterday and I'm at this point where I'm just scrolling through, you know, when you have that 10, 15 minutes, you're like, okay, let me see what the updates Mm -hmm. are. and, And you do that. And everybody has these beautiful pictures. Everyone looks so happy. And when you sit with everyone and you talk with them one-on-one, oh, my God, my husband, my wife, my kid, my this. And that doesn't come across when you're scrolling through the social media. So this fakeness spreads. But what's good and what's real takes such a long time. It's such an organic process. But hopefully in this year we're going to develop our discerning abilities and think for ourselves and not be swayed by the public or what's out there or what has the most following to be true because it's not. One of the topics on which you present in conferences is on the impact of violence and trauma on children and youth. And young people today, maybe they're more than just victims of gun violence. They're among the leading voices calling for change to our nation's weak gun laws and culture. A friend of ours, John Legend's nephew, Tada Prince, is going to be releasing a new song that he and John produced on February 14th of this year. And Tada started to sing the song Love One Another because of the gun violence, Samantha, because he couldn't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. He was a student in school and he was scared to actually go to school because he was wondering, am I even going to come home? So share with us what are some of the short and long-term impacts of violence and trauma that's impacting our youths today. How much time do you have? <laughs> Two seconds. You know, it is, I know. Yeah, it ahead. is. I started my career working in Washington, D.C. I'm sure you can imagine there's a lot in the urban area, urban parts of D.C., where there's a lot of violence. We often would go into the schools where a shooting had happened, a student had died or a teacher had died and support the staff uh, in getting through all of this. And the impact of trauma, it affects the entire system, affects the whole person. You know, one of the things that always used to fascinate me when I worked in D.C. in the schools was the expectation that young people who had witnessed and or experienced violence would be sitting in class and not be thinking about or re-experiencing the violence that they had in the cities. But we never talk to them about it. People are always afraid to talk to kids Maybe about we didn't what they know how to. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's very true. I think people are afraid that by talking about it, it might make the child feel worse. But in reality, it actually helps them to feel better. And so when there's a devastating trauma, your whole 
sense of senses takes in all of that information. And young people, as well as older folks who have PTSD, will have those intrusive thoughts, the re-experiencing. I had one young man who had sadly witnessed his father murder his mother, and then he killed himself when he was two. And so, you know, a lot of the people around him, it was certain that he had no memory of this. And, but his behavior, when I witnessed in his behavior, I was certain that he must. And so I asked him about it and he said, you know, he had a lot of imagery. He could remember, remembered what he saw and he remembered what the smells were like. He could remember the smell of the gunpowder and that it kept playing over and over and over in his mind, like a movie reel. And this had happened when he was two and he was at that time 11. And so for nine years, nobody had spoken to him about what he had witnessed or what he had felt, but it was though he was frozen in time. And so that was the impact that it was having on his body. His relationships were frozen. He couldn't engage with other children properly because all of this stuff was going on in his mind. He couldn't pay attention. He couldn't focus. A lot of times uh, young people are diagnosed with ADHD and even sometimes bipolar disorder when in fact they're re-experiencing trauma. Mm. Wow, and then it keeps getting repeated when it's unaddressed, right? Absolutely. If, if we don't provide therapy, if we don't recognize mm-hmm. the symptoms and the behaviors, then it just keeps happening. So then what happens is these kids get labeled as ADD. They get medicated as ADD and problematic oppositional kids when, in fact, they're dealing with trauma. Poor babies. Um, you spent a lot of time yeah. researching the infinite possibilities of human potential because then we need to move into that space. And how do we optimize the quality of our behavior and performance? So what are some of our infinite possibilities and what holds us back from achieving them? I mean, the possibilities are endless. Whatever it is that we think that we can do or believe we can do, we can do, right? And so what holds us back is ourselves. I had a client the other day say to me, you know, what you're saying is essentially that I'm blocking myself. And I said, yes, (laughs) this is what we do. Our conditioning, the way that we think about ourselves, the, the behaviors that we have, the things that we do, those are the things that generally hold us back. When we believe we can do something, then we set about creating a set of circumstances that make it happen. But doesn't it have a lot to do also, Dr. Samantha, with the past experiences? Aren't we spending too much time on the past that we're not able to really just be fully present to see what the potential is? Could you elaborate on that? Yes. The way that I would describe it is our conditioning, the way that our brain is conditioned from Uh our genetics. Part of it is from our childhood experiences. A lot of it is from, you know, things that are said to us in school by parents. Every single experience that we've ever had in our life from the moment we enter this world until the day that we leave, leaves an imprint on us. And our brain is trying to make meaning from those experiences. So it creates a set of stories about who we are in order to understand what's been going on. So, for example, if a child feels abandoned or feels that they're not getting enough attention from a parent, they develop the belief that they're not good enough. You know, we say things, for example, children should be seen and not heard, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how many of us grew up hearing having to say that? <laughs> well, because a person hears that, they then tend to think that they are too much or they need to step into the background or there's something about them that then they need to hide. And so if that's your belief, then 
if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be a speaker, for example, you're going to be terrified of putting yourself in the spotlight because if you stand in the spotlight, you will be seen. And that goes against your programming. And so that mm. is terrifying. And so that is how we then get in our way. We sabotage ourselves because we're afraid because of some pre-programming that we have from so long ago, which is why mm -hmm. trying to understand what that programming is is helpful because then you can undo it. In many of my presentations, mm -hmm. I have a slide with Yoda on it. And it said you mm -hmm. must unlearn all that you have learned. And that's the case because our programming is everything that we've learned up until this point. And then there's a lot of it that we must unlearn in order to thrive and to fulfill our full potential. Now we're in a culture in which everybody wants to be seen. I was at a, a video shoot with John and a few others, Dionne Warwick, Master P, a whole bunch for this upcoming album or song that I mentioned, Love One Another. And one of the things behind the scenes with the producers, they were, you know, pulling people, of course. I get it. I don't have 10 million followers. I know 10 million people personally, but I don't have 10 million followers. One of the things that was quite interesting is, oh, so-and-so has 100 million and 20 and 30 million. And I think the generation that we have behind us just feels that if I'm not seen, I'm not loved. Speak to that. Correct. Yes. We've now come to a place where we're putting value on likes, and likes becomes a part of our identity. So if we don't have enough likes or we don't have enough followers, then there's something wrong with us. We're not popular. It's, sort of, it's almost like being the popular kid in school, but on a grand scale. For a lot of people, it can be very depressing and depression-inducing um, and self-esteem disrupting to be so dependent on the likes and having people tell you, see you. But they're not really seeing you because to the point that you made earlier, they're not seeing the real you, the authentic you, right, the real right. life that you live. They're seeing the facade and the mask that you portray to the world. I can oftentimes see and feel what other people are experiencing. And so you, when you look into their eyes, you can see sometimes that they're sad, even when they're smiling. Yes. Or you can talk to somebody and in the tone of their voice, you can hear that they're in pain, even if they're telling you that they're fine. Mm -hmm. I know for me in relationship, I'm looking for authenticity. And it's very difficult to find that these days because people are presenting so much that isn't real. Yes. So how do we go about gaining inner power? power I know, I right? I appreciated your side yes. because for me, Samantha, it starts with a thought. In addition is the intention of that thought. And if I can mm -hmm. build a practice of not only generating thoughts that are connected to the original nature of the soul, which is pure and peaceful, and mean that, when I speak to a person, when I make a choice for my life or I make a decision for the life of another person, that that eventually builds such a strength and a power that I begin to see that in situations that aren't going the way that I want it, I can see that I'm still stable. But that's like mm -hmm. a long-term thing, right? And a lot of us want Absolutely. power now, you know, so that's just my little well, tidbit on that inner power yeah. process. For me, I think inner power starts with the idea that you are whole in the first place. You know, one of the things that people say a lot is that they are, I'm putting this in quotes, broken. And I don't believe that at all. I don't think anybody is broken. I think our hearts can feel broken. I think situations may happen where we might 
feel as if we are broken, but as a soul, as a spirit, as a human being, you are never broken. Uh, we do not break. Because then there's this idea that you have to put yourself back together. And I think that if you start with the idea that you are whole, perfect, and complete exactly as you are, and are willing to look at yourself in the mirror and see the real authentic you, then that's the place to grow from. You can't feel powerful when you believe that you're not good enough or that, you know, something is wrong with you all the time. And again, I think from our programming and from the things that we see in the media, the things that we hear out there in the rest of society, there's always something that we need to fix. And in reality, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. So it's more like a remembrance, isn't it, Samantha? Like we are just trying to remember an awareness of ourselves that we've lost. Right. So a number of studies have found that people leave managers, not companies. In fact, the DDI Global Leadership Consulting Firm had recently reported that 57% of people have left a job specifically because of the manager. And another 32% mm-hmm. haven't quit yet, but have seriously considered it. What are some of the factors that are contributing to this problem? And it makes me feel like, oh, my gosh, why do I have to always be the perfect one? <laughs> you know, when you're in a position of leadership, it's like, stop. This is ridiculous. Okay, there must be a reason why I'm in this position, but are you willing to optimize who and what you are to help the company, period? Why do you throw all the responsibility on leadership or managers? It isn't necessarily the responsibility of a manager that is the issue. I always look at leaders in companies as parents. It's a different system, but it operates very similarly. By the same token, if there's an issue with kids, oftentimes I always go to the parents. Like, what is going on here that is affecting the children. In companies, when there's toxicity in leadership or where there's a leader who doesn't hear or doesn't see or isn't open to whatever it is that's going on with the environment around them, it affects everybody else. So oftentimes, companies will bring in consultants and coaches, et cetera, to work with everybody else except the leader leader. And usually, they are the one who actually also needs the assistance. It isn't just everybody else and not me. It is us. We are a team. I am the leader of this team. I am the leader of this family. And if we work together and integrate together and recognize that we can support one another, then we will operate much more efficiently and effectively. When there's a disconnect or a disassociation from the whole, then you have issues. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. The mental health crisis, let's talk a little bit about that in corporate America. A lot of employees are reporting that employee absence happens due to depression. It's costing us $50 billion. What can be done at the corporate level to improve employee wellness and morale? Because haven't you seen, you've got a good teacher, but the students are really horrible. And I've seen where you've got an awful teacher, but the students are so good. So there are some factors there where sometimes folks are just coming into companies without the drive to fulfill the mission of that company, and it is a drain. And one of my questions and and thoughts have always been is to keep mobilizing people in companies, to keep reminding them that if we thrive, you're going to thrive. I look at companies or production companies like Ellen's team is amazing, Oprah's Mm -hmm. team at OWN, they're amazing. And they have Mm -hmm. it very clear. 
if they don't make her shine and keep her on top or keep the company on top, they're not going to have a job. So it's like there's this incentive that says, you know, look at what we're doing. Look at the work that we're doing. Look at the lives that we're helping. And I think that when people are in a company aware of those factors, and if they're not motivated, Samantha, what do you do? So I think with the examples that you give, the thought that comes to mind is that we're on a mission together and we're Mm -hmm. doing something together. And I think that's the idea. So yes, you want your leader to shine and we're a whole team here working together. A lot of times, again, I think there's a breakdown. There's so many different things. Employee engagement is often an issue caused by people not feeling as though what they do matters to anybody. And so they don't feel plugged into the mission and vision of the company. I'm currently experiencing that here in the healthcare system here in London at the moment. And there are people who go to work and they're not really interested in what they do. They're just going to work and they're going through the motions. If there isn't something in place to support employees like that, to try to understand, okay, what's the issue? Are you in the wrong job? Is this the right job for you? Do you even know what the right job for you is? There's so Mm -hmm. many people who are just working because they need a paycheck and they don't feel particularly connected to whatever it is, the mission of whatever the company is. And Mm -hmm. I think it starts there. Is it the job of the leadership to inform the employees that if you like being here, stay. If you love this company and what you're doing, stay. But if you're only here to receive a paycheck, I don't think this is the place for you. Well, oftentimes, Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. make the environment more toxic and they work themselves out of a job eventually because they're Mm -hmm. not going to be pulling their weight. I think leadership should be looking at how do we figure out what's the best place for you? What is really going on? The thing is, we never really know what's going on with other people because they don't often share, right? So people may be coming to work and being unplugged and they could be have a sick parent or a sick child at home or not be feeling well themselves. And you have no idea what that is. Now, is that the, the responsibility of the company to try to figure out all of that stuff? Not necessarily, which however... Many companies have employee assistance programs because they recognize that employees do need additional assistance. And if your mental health is positive in general, then people generally do better at work. But if you're highly stressed and you're in a toxic environment, it's not a good recipe for success. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree with that 100%. That's very true. So how do you go about helping businesses to build a high-performing and engaging workforce? so that those who are listening and have companies that they're running. I mean, we all want our employees to be happy because we know happy employees is a lot of profit. So share with us some of the steps that you're offering businesses to really build high performance. What's really important as a good leader is to really know the people who work for you. Um, A lot of times, again, people come to work and we don't know who they are. We were talking earlier about people show their least authentic selves on social media. They do the same thing at work. One of the exercises I do when I work with companies is sort of a getting to know you. Even if they've been working together for years, a lot of times people don't actually talk to each other about their real lives. And so many of the exercises that we do in our work is on truly getting to know each other. Those are the types of conversations that I think are really helpful Again, for people to feel like they matter, like their whole person matters when they're coming to work. It's less about people being, quote unquote, happy 
and more mm-hmm. about people feeling engaged in the work that they're doing, knowing that they matter and the work that they're doing matters and how important it is to not just the bottom line, but to the end user, whatever it is that we're working towards that helps employees feel connected to whatever it is that they're doing. There's like so that. many different industries out there, but that I think is really key, getting to know your team. I think the other thing too, that leaders wanting to know what your employee wants. So for example, where do you see yourself in five years? Even if this is not the ideal job for you, you know, do you see yourself mm. going up the corporate ladder? Is there another type of work that would be better for you? And then helping them to grow to that level. Because that's what a truly good leader does. It's yes. growing their employees. It's not yes, just having beautiful. them do what you tell them to do. Right. I love that. So leave us with your main message, even though you've left me and others with a lot. Any final thoughts, um, anything about the book that you've done and the work that you're doing, any upcoming events, anything at all? Because I love that you're on it. You're very clear. And I think it's really important for us to be really steep and really have some truthful dialogue with ourselves and with each other if we're going to really heal ourselves because all of us are struggling with one thing or the other. That means we're all in it together, so we can all help each other. Absolutely. We are all in this together. My book is called Strike It Happy, 101 Reflections to Revolutionize Your Life. It is not the kind of book that you have to sit down and read cover to cover. It's not a chore. It is a daily inspiration And the way that I use it is each day I open it and wherever it happens to fall on that day is the message I believe the universe is giving me for that day that I need to know. It is about living in gratitude, having affirmation and being in action. And there are quotes and action steps in it that just are one thing, one bite-sized piece to work on for that day to help you move yourself forward. And it's a very helpful tool to taking action in your life. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Leave us with a website where our listeners can get more information on your work. And thank you for coming on. And feel free to connect anytime. And when you're in D.C., let's do something with you at the Meditation Museum. Oh, wonderful. I would love that. It's ask, A-S-K, drsamantha.com. Beautiful. Dr. Samantha, have a wonderful 2020. Thank you. You too. Take care so much. Take care. Bye-bye. So I got from that conversation, treat people nicely. (laughs) I mean, if you really want to live your potential and an infinite potential, come from a good place within you. Even if you're struggling, let people know. Like there are times that I've had rough times and I've told my staff, I'm not feeling so good, so I'm going to really need you guys to step up. And they've understood it and they've done it for me. And it has made me feel a lot more secure and connected to my tribe. And by the way, my group and my tribe is just the best. Everyone for AM radio and the museums are just, I feel so blessed to have them all in in my life. And so I'm wishing all of you the best, too, with the folks that are around you, working for you. You make yourself be good and inspire them to be good because you're good. And I know that there will be times in which you don't feel so good, so it's natural that you might extend that out to them. But just remember, people will feel good around you if you're in a good place. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same, so let's do that. I'm going to end the song with I'll Be Waiting from Lucinda Drayton. Take care, everyone. All the best.